Lord, I thank you this morning that you are with us. You're in our midst, and you want us to hear your voice today. And so I pray, Lord, as we attentively listen to your voice, may your Holy Spirit move within our souls that we'd hear the inner voice of God speaking to our innermost being and that we would be strengthened, we would be encouraged, we would be comforted. But Lord, we may also be challenged and convicted and if we need to be discomforted because we're living too comfortable of a life where we need to really develop and grow and become all that you want us to be, I pray that you would do that work as well. And we thank you for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. And uh, we started this message, like I said, on April 24th. So we're not too far off. And we've had Mother's Day and two guest speakers. So that's what's taken me so long to finish the sermon I started. And a lot of people said, are you going to finish that sermon? Because sometimes I don't. How many have noticed that? But today I'm going to do that. You know, this past week, I was so struck with a, an amazing concept. I was, um, we were actually studying Joshua and Judges, but I've been reading in Revelation. I'm doing a study. I'm all over the place. I'm studying all over the place. And I was reading the story of the church at Ephesus. And Jesus actually has words to the seven churches at Ephesus. And let me just um, let you know that I had this little epiphany of the criticalness of the nature of the church and what we need to be in our community, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of our city. I want you to think about this for a minute. Apart from the light of the church, the community will remain in darkness. Apart from the light of the church, the community will remain in darkness. How many know that, you know, the Bible uses light and darkness in a very metaphorical way, but think about it in a very practical, physical way. When you and I are out where there is no light and it's nighttime and it's dark and you're walking in an unfamiliar place, how many know it's a very dangerous place to be? It is so easy to be lost, to stumble, to fall, to be injured in that process. And so all of us, when we're in darkness, we value having a measure of light. Isn't that the truth? When we want a flashlight, we hope the moon is shining. We're hoping for some measure of light so we can see which way we walk. And so when Jesus says he is the light of the world and the church is now described as the light, how important is it that we would be light? You know, a number of years ago, actually over just a little over a decade ago, some of us went and traveled to Israel, but on our second part of our journey, we went to the country of Turkey. And we traveled by bus over 2,100 kilometers, and we visited every site where John spoke to these seven churches. We actually went to the location. I mean, I think that'd be kind of neat. And we got to these locations, and we went to the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the great archaeological sites in the entire world today. It's a phenomenal site. But you know what's tragic about Ephesus? It's just an archaeological site. Nothing remains of the city. Wow. Now let me just read these words in Revelation. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. How many know that's a tremendous commendation? Jesus is saying, I really value all that you're doing. Aren't those all good things? They certainly are, but look what he says. But, or yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. This is now 
the condemnation of Christ. In other words, the challenge of Christ. They had left something behind. What did they leave behind? Your first love. Now, how many have an idea what that would be? That would be your intense love for God, which, you know, when you and I are really connected to God and we just, you know, discover our salvation. Now, some of you may not recall this because maybe you were converted as a child and it was more of a gradual thing. But for some of us who had a very, a far more dramatic conversion, maybe we're a little bit older, and it was more dramatic in the sense that we moved from light to darkness, and I mean from darkness to light, and we became aware of that, all of a sudden there's a, a sense of an amazing gratitude and love towards God for what he has done for us and that's what he's talking about and out of that love you know and it's always expressed this way I know how close I am to God and his love and how much I'm loving God by the way I'm loving people that's the real acid test when I'm compassionate and kind and understanding and forbearing and forgiving it's all reflecting that God's love is at work within my heart isn't that neat And so we can understand the power of God's love in our hearts because we're now reflecting that light to other people. They can begin to see the love of Christ flowing through our lives, and yet they were struggling with this. They had become maybe a little bit more judgmental, critical, frustrated. You know, that all those things can begin to transpire in our lives as believers. And then he says this, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, the verse before that, it described what the lampstand was. The lampstand is the actual church. And what God was saying is, I'm going to remove my presence from your midst. The church will no longer be light. It will be darkness. And when the church is darkness, the community suffers deeply. As a matter of fact, I would argue that there is no church today in Ephesus because somehow this church did not really repent. But then the very next letter, you find the letter written to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, a very very fascinating situation there. And what happened in Smyrna was this was a church battling with suffering and sorrow and deep affliction. It was being tested, but Jesus now spoke words of encouragement. He challenged them to overcome the persecution that they were experiencing, the hatred that they were having to overcome because of their love for Christ. You know, when you really love Jesus, when you are really light, guess what begins to happen? People begin to hate it. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense, isn't it? The brighter we burn, the more darkness hates it. And you go, why is that, Pastor? Why is it that the brighter I burn for Jesus, the more I love him, the more I love people, that people, you know, respond to that in a negative fashion? That's because the Bible says that light exposes darkness and it exposes the deeds as being evil. And so there's a sense, and we're going to look at it in this chapter, that the world will never love Christ that the world is at enmity with Christ, that the Christian, really when he's walking with God and he's loving God, will always have people that will hate him because of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 and verse 12, it says, brother, he's now speaking prophetically, he's saying, brother will betray brother to death and a father, his child, and children will rebel against his parents and have them put to death and all men will hate you because of me but he who stands firm or was faithful to the end will be saved how many get a sense that there's an anticipation that we we can actually understand that people will not like us just because we're the light 
and were radiating light. You'd think that they'd be happy for the light because they wouldn't have to stumble, but it says they don't want to. They want to stay in darkness because they're afraid when they come to the light, it exposes them for what they really are. You know, so often the things uh, we hate the most, the things that we despise and feel threatened by and try to eradicate from, from our lives are to our own demise. Isn't that true? It really is. And some people don't realize the very thing that they are afraid of, that they're threatened by, are the very, there's the very thing that they need the most. And a lot of times that's true in our own particular lives. And so Jesus now is going to the cross in Mark chapter 13. He's preparing his disciples. He's getting them ready to leave this world, to die on a cross. He's warning them and he's calling them to a state of watchfulness. Yet this message is applicable to every generation. Jesus challenges us to be on the alert, to be on guard, to be watchful. Jesus had spoken out against the religious leadership of the temple and now he leaves the temple for the very last time and the disciples as they're walking away from the temple make this amazing statement. It says in chapter 13 verse one as he was leaving the temple one of the disciples said to him look teacher what massive stones what magnificent buildings and I pointed this out on April 24th if, you wanna, if you're not want to you know, hear the beginning part of the sermon, you can go to the podcast and you'll catch it. But let me just say this. I'm going to just review real briefly. It says that these were magnificent buildings. The temple area it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's, you know, if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the Mount of Olives and you're looking down at the city, you see the Golden Dome. You just think that's a marvel of sight. But Herod's temple was three times ha- taller and it was a bigger area. It was all developed and it was absolutely beautiful. It was even more startling. More, there was gold in it. There was all kinds of things. This was an amazing architectural feat. And I could go on and talk about just what Herod had done with that temple. It's just incredible. And they said... Jesus says to them, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And he's speaking now futuristically. This is probably speaking in the 30s AD and not 70 AD. Everything that Jesus said occurred. Everything Jesus said in this chapter occurred in 70 AD. But I, I want to point out something a little beyond that in a moment. Just hang on to that thought. Here we see what scholars call the teaching from the Mount of Olives. It's a message of watchfulness and alertness. And look me, I just went through these verses. Brother, um, we'll get up here. They asked, when will these things happen and when will all of this be fulfilled? And Jesus says, watch that no one deceives you. I want you to notice the reoccurring theme in the chapter, watch. In verse 9, he says, you must be on your guard. In verse 23, he says, so be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. In verse 35, he says, therefore, keep watch. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. How many get a sense from just, I'm just pulling out the themes. How many get the sense that Jesus is telling us something? What is he telling his disciples? Be on guard, pay attention, be alert, be watchful, right? Isn't he saying that? So everything he says, he closes with those words. And so I believe that's the message we need to hear from Jesus. Jesus' words are framed in a message of warning. He's he's telling us to be awake and aware of what's transpiring without giving way to fear and speculation. And I want to talk about that because so often when difficult moments happen in life, what do we give way to? Apprehension and fear. 
Or else we look at these chapters in the book of Revelation and we're just filled with speculation what the future holds. We want to figure it all out. And Jesus is not telling us, try to figure it all out. What he's telling us is to pay attention. You need to be alert. So he warns us as his followers regarding four spiritual dangers. I, I, was, I just pulled these four ideas out of Alan Cole's uh, commentary. He didn't develop them, but I, I did develop them. I thought they're so powerful, they're so true. The first uh, spiritual danger was simply reliance on outward expressions of faith. And if you listen to that sermon that other time, I, I brought out the idea that we can have an external faith where we're kind of propped up by other people. That each one of us needs a personal faith. Each one of us needs to experience God in a personal way. Each one of us needs our own personal encounter. It's not suggesting that we don't need each other. Folks, I would be the first person to tell you that the church is desperately, I mean, we, we need the church family desperately to really develop and mature correctly. But we all need this personal encounter with God. And though there are, you know, like I said, outward elements of the Christian faith, we have to move beyond that in our lives. We have to cultivate we personally, every day, have to cultivate a personal intimacy with God. And that's why I would, I would beg of you, every day, read the scriptures, meditate on them, think about them, study them, even though, you know, you're not getting paid to do it like I am. You need to do that. You need to feed your own soul every day. And then you come to church, and then, you know, it's easier for you to follow along. You're learning, you're thinking, you're meditating, you know? You're evaluating. The Bible promises if you'll meditate on God's word day and night, you will prosper and be successful. It says that in Psalm 1. It says that in Joshua chapter 1. I'm encouraging you, if you want to be a successful person in life, this is the most important thing you will do. And so I'm begging you to do that. If you don't know how to do it, I have a reading chart there. You can read through the entire Bible in a year. You read three or four chapters a day. You write notes. If, you, if you're having a struggle with this, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Pastor Mark. Come and talk to other mature believers and say, hey, what do you do to keep your soul alive and fresh and, and you develop a personal walk with God? We'll be happy to sit down with you and say, hey, this is what we have done. This is what's worked for us. And you'll grow spiritually. The second spiritual danger is deception against false teaching and false teachers. You know, we have a nice young man in our church. He goes, Pastor, after I preach that sermon, he goes, how do I know you're not a false teacher? That was a good question. You know, I've been dialoguing with him. I like him. He's smart. He's thinking. I said, I'm so glad you asked that question. Jesus gives us an answer. And here's the answer. You'll, you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by the way they live their lives. Jesus talks about beware of false prophets. He says in Matthew chapter 7, he out outlines it. He says, take a hard look at their life. Paul, when he was talking to those people who were followers of him and he talking to Timothy, he says, look what manner of life I have lived. You know, I'm not a radio TV personality that I live 3,000 miles away and you have no idea what I'm doing. You only see me on TV. No, some of you know my life. You've been around me. You're going, yeah, we know you got a few issues, Pastor. <laughs> we got a little echo. We all have the same problems. But seriously, in all seriousness, you know my address. Some of you have been to my home. You know my life. I, you know, I'm, like Patty says, and the girls, Dad, you're quite boring. 
I said, That's, I don't need to be fancy. I've got you girls in my life. You're the spice of my life, you know? Right. But let me pick up where I left off a couple of, uh, three or four weeks ago. The third spiritual danger is, uh, wow, I'm just doing this. Okay. Is the distraction by the turmoil in our world. There is a lot going on in our world today. Isn't that true? And how many know that, you know, people make a lot of money keeping the distraction ahead of you? You know, you watch the news today, there's always something going on. You know, the prime minister elbows somebody, it's news, right? You know, plane goes down, it's news. Fire rages in McMurray, it's news, right? We're, we're constantly bombarded with images of tragedy and difficulty and suffering and sorrow around our globe, and eventually we almost get compassion fatigue. Where we just go, I, I'm, I'm indifferent to all that's hitting me. It's just almost overwhelming me, Pastor. There's so much going on. And sometimes it creates apprehensions in our hearts, and we begin to wonder about our own lives. And whenever there's difficulty and hardship in life, we easily focus on the problems. How many know that's true? When we have problems in our lives, our focus doesn't immediately go, Oh, God, thank you. My eyes are on you. Usually we're going, what in the world just happened and how can I get out of this and can you pray for me? But you know, we, t- we tend to lock in on the problem. Isn't that true? We try to start solving the problem. And God's allowed these things to happen in our world. We can anticipate in this lifetimes of difficulties. We want comfort, security, blessings. But if we only had that, we would soon become complacent, indifferent, and self-focused. Do you realize that? And you know sometimes in North America, that's what's happened to us. We haven't suffered very much. And therefore, when we look at the North American church today, we can honestly say many times we've become complacent, indifferent, and self-focused. We would begin to live for this world only, and I'm afraid that some people have slid into this problem. As if this life were the only life. Rather than understanding that this life is a preparation for all of eternity. That we would start rearranging our priorities a little differently. When trouble comes, it causes us to remember that we're only passing through this whole world below. Here Jesus in this text warns against being fearful or frightened by all the things that we hear. Look at verse 7 in Mark 13. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, you're going to always hear this stuff. There's going to be rumors and there's going to be actual wars, and there have been rumors and wars now for 2,000 years. Isn't that true? That's all we've experienced. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. You know right now, uh, Patty, you know, she's she's my... uh, outward networker I mean I work on the scriptures she works on the news and I'm reading now right now there's earthquakes happening in all these various mountains in Washington State and Oregon State how many know that they've had 130 earthquake tremors in Mount St. Helen alone in the last two weeks you guys abreast of all this some of you are going yep some of you go nope Actually, Mount Rainier is activated. Mount Baker is being activated. I mean, there's a lot of things happening in our world today. And you know, it can cause great apprehension. 
I was reading the article, like, you know, if Mount Rainier goes, there will be like a 10, uh, 10 feet high lava flow that will move down into the cities of the Puget Sound at a rate of 50 miles an hour, and it will create tsunamis if that mountain goes. You could get filled with apprehension. You could be filled with fear. I think of all my friends in that area. He says here, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. And on account of me, you will stand before governor and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. How many get the feeling like Jesus is preparing them for a very difficult life? How many get that impression? How many get the idea that, you know what, your purpose here is to be a witness? And we got challenged last week about what that really meant. He says, when you're brought before public and civic authorities, don't worry about what to say. It's at that moment the Holy Spirit will speak through you. We all need to know that all of these things happen in that day. As a matter of fact, there's a whole theological understanding of Revelation that says everything that you're reading already occurred in the first century. Some of you don't know that, but believe me, there's a theology out there. I'm aware of that. My argument is, yeah, a lot of what happened in Mark 13 and in the book of Revelation actually occurred. But I'm going to argue, and I can prove it to you, that I think that's going to happen again. That's just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end. And that throughout church history, we've had these experiences. And how many know that when you're living through World War II or World War I or Civil War, or whatever war you're living through, that you're going to feel like the world's coming to an end? When life is that bad, you're going to feel like this is, you know, everything. When, when normal no longer is normal, what the way life is used to be is no longer that way. When the world is flipped upside down, you're going to feel it's all come to an end. You're going to despair. You're going to get anxious. You're going to, you know, some people are going to stop believing in God. They're going to, you know, just lose their cool. But Jesus says, don't do that. You can anticipate that kind of hardship on this planet. Because Jesus knew what's in the hearts of people. He understands the nature of sin. He understands how it affects people on a broad scale. God knows all these things. This has happened throughout 2,000 years of church history. Alan Cole, New Testament scholar, said tacitly, then a crop of false teachers are the one sign of the end as a steady worsening of the political world situation. Can I just say something, folks? Not to discourage you, but don't, you know, I appreciate political leaders. I think we need to be engaged in the process, but don't put all your eggs in the one basket. You'll be disappointed. That's not where our hope ultimately belongs. In the parallel chapter dealing with the same material in Luke's gospel, Jesus says this, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, when your world is going upside down, you and I need to stop looking at the problem and look up and say, okay, God, how are you going to save me from this? And when the world comes to its climatic end, and it shall, folks, because I am convinced the Bible teaches a linear understanding of history and where we're headed, our destiny. And when it comes to that moment we can lift up our heads and say something is going to change Jesus is going to come back on the scene but he also warns us 
That's the word of encouragement. This is the word of warning. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. What's he basically saying? Don't drown your sorrows. Have you ever met people like that? Sorrow comes, they start drowning it. Do you understand what I mean by that statement? A lot of people just, you know, they go, what's the use? They give up. A lot of them, you know, imbib alcohol at high levels and high quantities so they don't have to deal with the true realities. And so people begin to exit out of life. You know, there's a lot of ways to escape reality. We can exit out of the truth of, of life. He says, don't do that. How do we respond to the often frightening news we witness? Sometimes it's with fascination, sometimes it's with horror, sometimes it's with compassion. We realize how fragile life really is when we see that huge forest fire in McMurray. I lived in that city. When I was seeing pictures, I knew exactly where those locations were because I I lived in that community. I saw what was going on. It was amazing to me, a place that I had been was now being destroyed in front of my eyes. And it made me take pause and reflect and say to myself, is there any safe place? And sometimes I think as Canadians, we think we're safe because we live in Canada and God says, no, you're not. You're no safer here than you are anywhere else. The true realm of safety is not in a place, it's in a person. We need to put our hearts and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus was describing for his disciples what was going to befall the city in which they were now looking at, devastation was only one generation away And that beautiful scene that they were looking at within 30 years was going to be a place of total horror. So what happened in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem was really, in reality, a foreshadowing of what happens at the end of the Sage of Grace when Jesus will return. If Jesus were only talking about what happened here as a fulfillment of Jerusalem, like some people teach, which is what they call the preterous position of the text, means nothing to most of you, but some of you may know what I'm talking about. The preterists would say that the gospel has been preached to the ancient world and Jesus' return has come in a different way. They see Jesus as coming in 70 AD as judging the city of Jerusalem for its sins. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's talking about something far greater than that. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us this. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Do you know what happened? The early believers, when they heard Jesus talk about these words and they took them to heart, you're gonna love this. When they began to see the impending sense of judgment coming on Jerusalem, you know what the Christians did? They fled the city. And then the Romans surrounded and besieged it. You know where they went? They went to a little city called Pella. And all the believers were spared. Isn't that amazing? Because they were watching They were on their guard, they were alert, and God redeemed them and spared them from that judgment on that city. That's an amazing, amazing picture. Now, this statement I'm just reading here, Jesus is actually quoting from the book of Daniel, chapter seven. It's a reference to that book. It's when God is gonna destroy the kingdoms of this world. Listen to what it says in Daniel, you're gonna love this. And as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's a picture of God, by the way. It's the name of God, Ancient of Days. 
His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. I mean, I think that's a pretty amazing picture, huh? Do you know, this is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a vision. It's filled with symbolism. Watch what happens. Ten thousand, I'm sorry, thousand upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand. What's he saying? An innumerable company of angels are surrounding the throne of God. They stood before him. The count was, uh, court was seated and the books were open. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. Now you go back to the book, you go to the book of Revelation. Jump up ahead, talks about the horn. You know, a horn speaks of authority and power. Somebody in authority and power was railing against God. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Daniel's talking about this, but we see that story played out in the book of Revelation. The other beasts had also been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision that night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. It was he, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom that we are a part of. Now, how many know when you're reading this, you're getting encouraged. How many are getting a little encouraged? You're going, hey, our kingdom has an everlasting kingdom. Our king is going to defeat all the, the powers of this world. I love this. This literary language used to describe the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already said, is called apocalyptic. When we read of Jesus coming in the clouds, Remember that statement when he was with his disciples on the Mount of Olives and they, they saw Jesus going up into heaven? How many know the day of ascension? Jesus is being lifted up and taken into the clouds. Remember that? And then the angels come to the disciples and they said, this same Jesus which you now see, uh, it says, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. How did they see him go into heaven? He was taken up before their very eyes and the cloud hid him from their sight. Now how many, when you look at that story, you just think, whoa, this is white fluffy clouds. Jesus has come into earth on a white fluffy cloud, right? That's kind of the picture. How many have that kind of a picture, you know, white fluffy cloud, Jesus coming down? Is that your picture? Some of you? Come on, let's have some honesty. How many see Jesus coming back, white fluffy clouds, real kind of nice? Can I, I'm gonna just, I wanna just destroy that myth right now. Sorry, guys. Here's the picture you need to see, the real picture. Think of the worst thunderstorm you've ever been in your life. You gotta think of lightning flashing. I was in Saskatchewan one time, the lightning bolts were coming down. The, I was driving and I felt the earth shaking. You ever had a storm like that where the earth is shaking, bolts are hitting the ground, you're just going, please don't hit me. <laughs> Anybody have that kind of experience? Now you're getting closer to the experience of Jesus coming back. You go, really? Really? How do you come up with that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked that question. Let, let, let me give you a picture from Revelation chapter 19. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Now, this is 
symbolic language. But what we're really saying is, when you see a white horse and the person on a white horse, you're thinking of a leader. He's coming to do something. He's on a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. Who is the rider on the white horse here? Thank you, it's Jesus. And what is he coming to do? Judge and make war. Wait a minute, hold it. You're messing with my head now. I got Jesus, he's loving people. What's he doing here in Revelation coming down to make war? Well, I wanna just give you the, the true picture of Jesus. He's not only the most loving person you'll ever meet, but he's the most just person you'll ever meet. And he's gonna deal with sin. Look what happens. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That speaks of our righteousness. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He's, he's quoting from Psalm 2 now. I was going to read Psalm 2, but this is, he's quoting from there. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's a picture we never talk about in church anymore. The wrath of God. Do you know when God sees... People being mutilated, raped, abused, manipulated, taken advantage of. All that stuff is going up into heaven. Andre, here it comes. All the injustice of the world. Why, God? Why? God says, I'm going to judge it. Every last mistreatment, it's coming. It's filling up into a bowl. It's a picture. And when, you know, eventually, when humanity sins to such a level... God is long-suffering, the Bible says, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But lest you and I be deceived or fooled, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. God will judge every sin. Jesus is now coming to execute judgment. Is that a powerful picture? It should scare the bejeebers out of you. I'm serious. You keep reading this chapter, there's people running to rocks and diving in caves, you know, but you know what, we're so rebellious, we won't get right with God. We won't humble ourselves and say, God, forgive us. Now we're, we become like Pharaoh, our hearts get hard. Boy, that's a problem. Jesus comes as a warrior king to judge his world. Let me move on. On his robe and thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is pretty triumphal, but it's very militaristic. How many get that? This is a military picture when Jesus comes back. He's coming to judge the world. Wow. Give me, give me the last warning. The unexpected persecution we'll experience. You know, I think we live in a region and time where we don't feel it. We only, we have unprecedented freedoms, the freedom to worship, the freedom of speech, the freedom from a lawless society, and yet Jesus warned that in that hour, true believers will experience persecution. Do you know in our culture, how do we experience it? From social ostracization, we easily feel excluded, demeaned, looked down upon, we can expect to be called intolerant, ignorant, unloving, and judgmental, to name but a few names people th think about us. Close-minded, do you have any more names? They're out there. 
Yet, even as we're talking, we are aware that thousands of believers are being martyred annually. You know, some of the students I've taught in India are now with Jesus in heaven. They were killed just because they were Christians. And you know, it was really, it was really, uh, how many would like to be standing there? I'm teaching a class and I have 14 students and the Spirit of God impresses in my spirit that some of these that you're teaching will lose their life for my sake. It's a little humbling. And you know, within, before the year was up, one of them had already been martyred. That's why I knew it was God speaking to me. You know, that's a little insightful thing. Shakes you up as a teacher, I'll tell you. Now, let me just close with this. Because we've already read those scriptures in Mark 13. It says this. James Edward points out, fallible and false believers within the community of faith will conspire with the world to persecute true disciples. The reason why I believe that this isn't just speaking to what happened there in the first century is that Jesus continues with these words. Because those will be the days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one could survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth, uh, and, and unto the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. And James Edwards concludes with this thought. All the signs that have been given add up to one conclusion. The end cannot be prepared for. That is because the end is ultimately not a then, but a mysteriously present now. And the sole preparation for the end is watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. What is he saying? He's saying you could move to the furthest reaches of the earth, store up all the food you want to, but you'll never be ready for this. You and I need to live a life that we're the light. You and I need to make a decision to be on our guard. You and I need to live a certain kind of life. We have to prepare our hearts and minds. Isn't it interesting that now as Jesus is concluding, he says these words. Um, let me just go down here. Let me just read the close, and then you'll get it. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven. I'm reading verse 32. Nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know what that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. We're to be watching and praying that we'll be able to escape all that is about to happen so that we'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. I'm quoting Luke 21, 36. That's a parallel text. In other words, we live in a way that if Jesus were to come, we would not be ashamed of how our lives are being lived. James Edwards, let me close. I love this quote. He says, Temptation, temptations come in many forms. False prophets raise false hopes. Mistaken signs raise false fears and anxiety. Here we have the delay of the second coming, the parousa. 
It can induce complacency. Jesus hasn't come back yet, and for 2,000 years, eventually people go, he'll never come back. But it just raises complacency and neglect. Lack of knowledge induces resignation and defeat. These and other factors tempt disciples to forsake um, their vocation. And what is our vocation? Living faithfully in the present, be attentive to the signs and being ready at any hour of the return for the master. It is not one job among others. It is the doorkeeper's only job. What is, what is, what is Mark telling us that Jesus is saying? That you and I have one task. We're a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. We better be ready when the master comes. Let's stand. You know, as I was thinking about this message, boy, there's a lot of stuff going inside of me. I just had to hold myself down. Believe it. I was just thinking about this. You know, I'm gonna just do something a little different. I got a couple of minutes here. I'm just gonna close this way. Sometimes we have a false picture of Jesus. You know, we've, we've emphasized, and rightfully so, the grace of God. Rightfully so. God will forgive us. I would argue that Jesus is the most gracious person alive, and that's why he tells us not to judge, because we usually do it poorly. God judges properly, but he will judge. We need to know that. And even though God's willing to forgive us, thank God for that. And he's willing to pour his life into us and show grace to us and give us you know, his life and his love in our hearts so that we can truly be lights in our world. How many think this is important that we really are light? Can you see the world around us becoming darker? Anybody see it getting darker? And I go, this is great. How many know that you don't have to be that bright if you got a dark world? <laughs> now you're starting to illuminate, you know? Isn't that true? Because sometimes I say, Lord, I'm just a little light. But God's going, it's getting darker. And the darker it gets, the more power the little light has. Amen? I'm going to ask some people today to do something courageous. And I'm going to ask you to come forward today as we close our service. Maybe you're here today and say, you know, Pastor, I am not ready for Jesus' coming. I have not been living a watchful life. You just come right now. Come. Just out of your seats. Just come. You want to be ready. You're saying, I want to be ready. I don't want to be living an indifferent, careless life. I want to be ready for Christ's coming. You just come right now. I want to be ready. And I have, I'm not. And I know it. And I want to be ready. I want to be ready right now. You just come right now. Don't worry about anybody else. It's about you and God. You just come forward right now, real quickly. That's great. I want to pray with you. Because Jesus said it's going to come in a day you do not know. But I'm going to charge you to become doorkeepers. That you're going to live for one purpose. You're going to say, Lord, I want to be ready. I want to be ready for that hour. And I don't want to live in fear and apprehension. That's not where I want to live. I'm going to pray that God's going to deliver you from that, from all fear and apprehension. I want you to, when you see things getting worse, and I'm going to tell you right now, they will get worse. It's the way life is. I'm going to encourage you to look up. Your redemption is drawing near. 
You know, as I look at our world today, I go, wow, this is amazing, the things that are happening. And I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I have no concept. The Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't even tell us to try to figure it out. It just tells us to be ready. It tells us to be alert. Amen? You know, if you have your heart right with Christ, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're actually ready. Do you know that? It's just that simple. Say, Lord, here's my life. I give it to you. Now help me to live for you. Help me to live for you, not for me. You know what? I want to lay my life down and live for you, wherever that takes me. God will use your lives in a very powerful way. You're going to be light in people around you. There's a lot of darkness around us. Isn't that true? Lots of darkness. I'm going to pray for courage in our lives, not just for you today, but for all of us. We need courage. We need, cold, we need absolute courage. And we need strength because we are going to be persecuted, guys. I'm telling you right now, you're going to experience persecution. You need to arm your mind. Be prepared to suffer, the Bible says. We will experience persecution. Do you think when you're letting your little light shine, Satan's going to come along and try to blow you out? He's going to use other people to try to discourage you and tell you that you're, you know, you're not making a difference. But that's all a lie of the enemy. The fact that you have faith in Christ, this is the victory, even our faith. And the enemy is doing everything he can to erode faith from your heart through the adversity and the difficulty that you're experiencing. He wants to diminish your confidence and trust in God. You say, Lord, even though the fig tree doesn't blossom, even though my world is falling apart, yet will I praise you. My trust and hope is in you and you alone. I'm not looking to man. I'm not looking to those chariots. I'm looking to you, the deliverer of my soul. My eyes are looking upwards. I'm looking for my redemption. Hallelujah. I want to be on guard. I want to be vigilant. I want to be prayerful. Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I just thank you that you're stirring our hearts, Lord. You're drawing us to yourself. You're showing us that this world is falling apart. It's groaning under the weight of darkness and sin. And Lord, you're calling us to be that light in our community, Lord, that burns bright. Fill us with love, Father, so even those that would persecute us, that rather than render evil back to them, that we will show love to them, Father, that we will burn even brighter the light of your love. Lord, that grace would flow from our lips, O oh God, that we would have an amazing impact upon our community, that many people would turn from darkness and turn to the light. Lord, there are so many people living in fear and apprehension, but Lord, we can walk in quiet confidence because you are in control of the future of our lives. You're in control of earth's destiny, oh God. And your kingdom is a kingdom that is everlasting. And every kingdom will come down, Father. And all the rule of man will falter and fail until you rule and reign, oh God. And so we pray today that you would do a powerful work in our human souls, oh God. That you would lift us up, oh God, and encourage us and strengthen us, oh Lord. That we would stand in this evil hour, O oh God. That we would be strong in your might and in your glorious presence, O oh Lord. That you would use our lives for your honor and glory. Father, may we have a greater impact than ever before. May we so live to bring joy to your heart, Father. And when that day comes, there will be singing and there will be joy. 
There will be delight in our heart, Lord, because we have lived for you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.